So welcome everyone to the second colloquium of the semester. Uh, today we have Dr. Ross Bassett, Professor of History here at NC State, but before we have our Ag Biofuse fellow Nolan introduce him, I just wanted to leave some space for announcements and updates. And before I give you space for that, I wanted to just remind you also that next week we have Dr. Amanda Pierce from EPA, who will be giving the colloquium. Um, and we also uh, talking about policy and regulation of emerging biotechnologies. And we she will be staying for an additional hour for lunch. So I have sent most of you calendar invites and uh, please let us know if you will be attending the second part for her talk, more informal lunch. Um, and I also want to remind you that the GES Center, uh, the Global One Health, Academy and the Genetics and Genomics Academy, we've been working together to create these professional development workshops. So fall and uh, spring semesters, uh, we will have one Friday a month uh, meetings for all, for all cohorts um, talking about different issues. So next Friday, we have the professional development workshop on maintaining work-life balance. That's at Witherspoon and it's from 9.30 to 11.30. And there'll be some there'll be breakfast and and coffee available. But it's also a great place not just to be learning about these topics, but also to be getting to know some of these other cohort members. So I just wanted to point that out. Uh, so if you haven't already accepted the invite um, and you're interested in maintaining work-life balance, uh, we've got some great speakers and activities. Uh, and so before. Before we begin, does anybody have any announcements or updates? Anything else they would like to bring up? Katie? <sighs> Even if your voice shakes, I guess. Um, I just wanted to take a beat to um, offer up about 15 seconds of silence for what happened to Chapel Hill yesterday. It hit me deep. Um, a lot of close personal and professional connections there, including that was where my dad was on faculty, like just down the road. Um, so if you would bear with me, this is not coming from any belief system other than shared humanity. Just take a moment and I'll count. Uh, thank, thank you. Um, I know a lot of us sent our kids off to first day of school yesterday and some of my good friends. Kids were in lockdown for a big chunk of the afternoon and I just wanted to, I don't know, remind all of us that we're humanity first and professional second and acknowledge the trauma that that community is going to be going through for a long time. And that could have been us. And that um, just touched me pretty deeply. So thank you. Thank you, Katie. Hi, everyone. Nice to see y'all. Uh, most in the room know me, but um, for those who don't, uh, I'm Nolan Spiker. I'm a third year PhD student in uh, communication rhetoric and digital media program uh, here at NC State. I'm also a member of the AgBioFuse cohort. Um, our speaker today is Dr. Ross Bassett, um, who will be leading a discussion on Moore's Law and um, its relevance to genetic engineering. Um, Ross and I actually share a bit in common in that uh, our careers began in, with a bachelor's degree in a STEM field, and then we did some work in, um, in the private sector before going to graduate school um, in the humanities, um, for him, history, and for me, communication. Um, and in Ross's case, he was a practicing, I can say that, practicing electrical engineer at IBM um, before uh, studying with Cornell and Princeton. Uh, today, Ross is a professor of history at NC State, 
and is the author of two books. Um, his first book, uh, Trace the Origins and Development of the um, Metal Oxide Semiconductor, which is uh, lies at the core of essentially all digital electronic devices. Um, and his second book, entitled The Technological Indian, um, examined the central role of, of um, that MIT played in the in the technological imagination of uh, U.S. educated or trained um, Indian engineers. Um, and this second book uh, serves as the basis for an exhibit uh, that's on display still uh, at the MIT libraries. It was put together by MIT faculty and students. Um, in addition to these, uh, Ross is the acting director of the Benjamin Franklin Scholars uh, Program here at NC State. Uh, this provides undergraduate engineering students with an opportunity to uh, earn dual degrees in engineering and humanities and social science field. Um, I'm just learning about this myself, but I'm super happy it exists. And um, and I thank you for, for heading it up. Um, I know it's, it's a great thing for undergraduate students who um, have interests that kind of span disciplinary silos. So it's some, definitely something I would have liked when I was an, an undergraduate. So um, with that, I'll just say thanks everyone for being here and I'll hand things over to us. I wanted to thank you all for coming and thank you um, for the invitation. And so the uh, the Franklin Scholars is an analog to the uh, Jefferson Scholars that uh, Will Kimler uh, lead. So we kind of keep it under wraps. I guess we kind of want students to work a little bit to uh, to find us, and but we have a, a great program with a lot of um, great students in it. And so I wanted to thank uh, the Genetic Engineering and Society program for the invitation and also for its overall encouragement of interdisciplinary work here at NC State. And um, while climate change isn't in general a good thing, I really thank this program for elevating the intellectual climate at NC State and really just um, <laughs> uh, what, what you contribute to the university. So <laughs> the background to this, my talk comes um, from a, a uh, visit that Rob Dunn, Dunn made to CHAS last April. And in this visit, he mentioned the uh, uh, cluster um, gala where um, the reference was made, comparisons were made between uh, Moore's Law and progress in genetic engineering. And there followed a very robust exchange on the Genetic Engineering and Society listserv, uh, which uh, included a, a positing of Kuzma's Law. Um, <laughs> and so I lurked on that um, exchange for a little while. and But then I wrote to Rob and said, hey, I don't know anything about genetic engineering, but I know a bit about Moore's Law. And so it might be useful if um, someone would talk about um, Moore's Law and then you all could you know, see ways that maybe it's relevant to genetic engineering and it might provide, I guess I would say, some tools for you all to think. And it's in that spirit um, that I'm coming today. And so it's an interdisciplinary division of labor where, uh, again, I don't know anything about genetic engineering and I'll sort of count on you on providing um, uh, that insight. So first of all, here's sort of a classic uh, Moore's Law curve showing developments in integrated circuit technology from 1970 up till the present, where today um, we're able to make um, Apple uh, microprocessors that have over 100 billion uh, transistors on it. And over on the, the right side is, uh, is Gordon Moore. Uh, Gordon Moore had a PhD in chemistry from Caltech. He served as a teaching assistant for, for Linus Pauling and then um, 
then was a founder of two corporations, Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel. He, um, I had the, the, the privilege of uh, interviewing him several times. He passed away earlier, earlier this year. Hmm. And so um, also, as Noel mentioned, I, I wrote a book, you could say, that had it's, as a subtext on Moore's Law, and here's um, just an example of it. Um, so as you'll see today, um, Gordon Moore developed what became as what became known as Moore's Law, referring to something very specific. Uh, the original formation of Moore's Law was a statement that the number of components on an integrated, the most cost-effective integrated circuit, uh, doubled every year. But over time, uh, Gordon Moore sort of acknowledged that he had lost control of Moore's Law, and over time, it, it, he said it came to refer to anything that could be plotted on semi-log paper as a straight line um, in the semiconductor industry. <laughs> and so I think it's sort of expanded even more that now we make comparisons uh, uh, with Moore's Law to basically anything that involves, you know, exponential growth, continu continual growth. And so um, in some sense, you could say it has become a metonym for sustained exponential growth, like Einstein is a metonym for genius. Moore's Law, think of Moore's Law referring to, to growth. And so it's not my purpose to police people's use of language, uh, but if we want to maybe learn something, maybe a more robust examination of Moore's Law can provide tools that are useful for uh, genetic engineering, and that's what I hope I might be able to do today. And so uh, one of the other things is I'm going to use some awkward phrasing throughout my talk today, so I'm going to talk a lot about the phenomena Gordon Moore described in his 1965 paper uh, versus Moore's Law. And I guess I do this for two reasons. As a historian, I sort of bridle against using term, um, describing a period using terms that the actors in that period would not have used. And so Moore's Law didn't exist for actors until the late 1970s or the 1980s. And then another reason, even today, I bridle somewhat about the technological determinism that is sort of incorporated into Moore's Law, uh, that it sort of supposes that this is just sort of an automatic um, thing that happens. So um, there was a, a, a wealthy supporter of Mahatma Gandhi who once said, you wouldn't believe how much money it, uh, it costs us to keep Mahatma Gandhi in poverty. And so, in, in an analogous way, you could say, you wouldn't believe how much, how many non-technological factors are involved in presenting this picture of technological determinism. And so part of what I want to do is sort of unpack some of those um, features today. And I guess, again, I imagine that there are many non-technological factors that are really important uh, in genetic engineering as well. And so we often think about Moore's Law, I think, in terms of um, of, of science and technology, but I would say in some sense, the essence of Moore's Law is, is about capitalism. And go a little bit uh, deeper, uh, Moore's Law is about uh, manufacturing in a for-profit industry that is not regulated uh, by the government. So this may put some, some limits on maybe the relevance of, of Moore's Law, but we could talk about uh, that later for you all. Another way I would talk about uh, Moore's Law so it was a vision of a possible future that was laid out 58 years ago by, by Gordon Moore, but it, it has been realized over the past 58 years by the mobilization of a large number of uh, individuals, of corporations who stood to 
benefit by the realization of that vision. And so I'll, I'll talk about that um, as we go on. But so you could say that the starting point for Moore's Law uh, comes in, um, in December of 1947 in Murray Hill, New Jersey, just outside of, of New York City. And so uh, Bell Labs at that time invented three uh, physicists, um, Walter Bratton, John Bardeen, and William Shockley invented uh, what came to be known as the transistor. And so Bell Labs was interested in replacing unreliable vacuum tubes with some more reliable uh, solid state device, and that was uh, oh. the transistor. And so Bell Labs was an extraordinary uh, scientific um, institution, one, maybe one of the greatest scientific institutions um, in the United States. It's, it's basically been completely dismantled uh, since that time. But there was sort of a, a contradiction uh, here that you brought together all these brilliant scientists, uh, but they were working for an extremely conservative organization. The Bell Telephone System controlled the, the phone system in the United States, and they believed in very controlled uh, change. They didn't want things going out, you know, out of control. So as an example of this, uh, equipment in the Bell system would have a nominal 30-year life. So I tell you know, my students, you know, imagine if you get a new phone today, you'll be eligible for an upgrade when you're 48. Uh, you know, uh, that, that's the world that they operate in. But one of the, the things that Bell Labs did was they essentially, you could say, released the transistor into the wild. They didn't try to control it themselves. They said, anyone who wants to make transistors can do it um, for a nominal $25,000 license fee. And by the way, we'll actually teach you how to do it. We'll conduct seminars. We'll train people. And so um, that was what they did. So many companies um, did that. But for the first, first 10 years of the transistor's existence, it was really a Bell Labs technology. They made all the major uh, breakthroughs in, in this technology. But in the late 1950s, uh, things took a bit of a turn. And this turn came from a, a new company that was uh, established in what came to be known as Silicon Valley. Some people sort of say that this was the first real Silicon Valley company. This was the company that established Silicon Valley, as we know it, Fairchild uh, Semiconductor. So there were eight, eight scientists who started this company. Gordon Moore is the third person from the right in, in this picture. You see a little bit of maybe the umbrella show, suggests a little bit of California sunshine and informality, but we've still got our suits and ties anyhow. But so um, um, at the time, the way transistors were used were, would be, um, you could see from the, the picture in the top right, what you do is you would make individual transistors on a wafer of, of silicon. Uh, then you would uh, dice them and cut them all up into individual components. You would package them in a metal can, and then you would wire them up with other components, so resistors, capacitors, and put them on a circuit card like this. And so uh, Fairchild had the idea and also developed the method of, instead of slicing them all up, um, putting on one piece of silicon multiple transistors, um, other electronic uh, components, resistors and capacitors, and putting them all together, as you would see, see in the, the photograph at the bottom right. And this was um, a fairly controversial idea that there were a lot of people who thought it would never work. And one of the, the most sort of 
strident opponent of this idea were people at Bell Labs. They thought, you know, it would just never work. It was impractical. The numbers wouldn't add up. But it, it turned out that the United States military was willing to put a lot of money into this idea because it yielded um, circuits that were much smaller, that used much less power. And because of that, uh, it, they were really advantageous for missiles and for the Apollo program. And so the, the federal government put a lot of money into it and it proved to be workable. So um, moving on now, um, so in 1965, um, Gordon Moore was asked to write an article about the future of the electronics industry for this trade publication, Electronics. And I should say this, um, so 1965, if Bell Labs, the Bell System, had decided to hold on to this technology um, and control the patents, this would have been a year, would have been the year the patent would have expired. So this would have been the year that people, you know, anyone could have used this technology, but instead uh, the world uh, businesses had 17 years of experience with this technology under their belt. So anyhow, Gordon Moore was asked to write a, a, a paper on the future of uh, semiconductor technology and, and what we might expect in the next few years to come. And so he, the basis for his analysis um, was a, an examination of the cost of making um, integrated circuits and really bundling level of production of, uh, of density would yield the least cost of components overall. And so what he found was to achieve the, the least cost component, um, the, number, the least cost, excuse me, to achieve the minimum cost of components overall on integrated circuits, there was a sweet spot in every, uh, in every year. And so there was this minimum um, that you would, would was the optimal point to operate at. And so what he found was that that minimum point had um, been moving out, um, it, had, it had been falling in terms of the overall cost per component. So uh, overall, the, the cost per individual transistor resistor was declining pretty dramatically, but also it was possible to make um, integrated circuits that were denser and denser. And this is uh, a, the version of this uh, plot that, you know, on the semi-log paper. And so what it showed was that um, in 1961, you could make um, two, um, put two um, components on an integrated circuit. By 1965, we had moved up to uh, basically two to the seventh or 128. And so if you extrapolated from there in 1975, you would get to two to the 16th, which is 65,000. Um, and so that was um, what, he, what he showed. And so um, sort of uh, whimsically that he said, no, integrated circuits will lead to such wonders as home computers. And sort of uh, whimsically at a time when computers were room, room size pieces of electronics, they uh, illustrated this with a, uh, a uh, picture of a booth uh, selling handy home computers alongside of notions uh, and cosmetics. Um, but returning to the, the graph, this, uh, this graph here, um, it wasn't all sort of a rosy picture. There were, this graph represented in a certain sense a challenge. So again, this what Gordon Moore was talking about was real life products that people were selling that you had to find customers for to, to make payroll. And so a couple of things you could say about this, um, you know, so what it meant was that every, uh, you had to 
find new products basically all the time, that you had to find uh, new products that weren't exactly clear what they would be um, over time. So you had, and one way I've described this is, it's sort of like you are trying to run up a downward moving escalator. So it becomes uh, easier and easier to make these integrated circuits all the time. They become cheaper and cheaper. So to, to succeed, to make money, you've got to continue to make more and more complexity. You've got to make more and more uh, complex integrated circuits. And so again, it represented a real challenge. It wasn't exactly clear, you know, what would be these points that would make a semiconductor money at any of these positions along the line? And so oh. that was what uh, had to be found. And so for those of us of a certain age, we'll, we'll remember this, the uh, electronic calculator. So uh, around 1970, it became possible to put all the electronics for an electronic calculator on, on a single chip. And so again, we'll remember that TI SR10 or the SR50 that enabled us to not have to use a slide rule. Um, I, and so on the one hand, this was a technology that put unparalleled electronics in the general population's hands. But on the other hand, what Moore's law did was it basically destroyed the, you know, it led to dramatic decreases in the price of, first of all, this this integrated circuit, um, then that calculator. And so this product was basically destroyed as a profit-making product that you couldn't make money because they could be made so cheaply. And there was no path to continue to develop it. You couldn't quite go to a personal computer or anything else. So one of the challenges is that Moore's Law, this Moore's Law curve presents is you have to find some product that has a path that will basically expand forever. Um, that's what you have to find. And so that was really one of the problems that the industry faced. And so uh, in 1968 was a pivotal year, I'd say, in the development of this phenomenon that Gordon Moore described in 1965. And this came with the founding of, of Intel. So Gordon Moore and his partner at Fairchild, Robert Noyce, left and formed this new company. And when you would talk to them, um, they would sometimes describe sort of personal slights that Robert Noyce was turned down for a promotion that wasn't happy about that and so on. But one of the things I guess I think looking back at it, I think they understood some in some ways that for this phenomenon that Gordon Moore had described in 1965 to be made real, that organizational structure was completely inadequate, that that would not work. And so to realize the possibilities of that 1965 paper, they had to basically leave it all behind and start again. And so some examples of this, um, Fairchild was famous for its research and development lab. They hired, hired physicists, chemists, engineers uh, to work in a research and development lab. Uh, Intel made a decision, no research and development lab. That just is too slow. That does not operate at the time, at the time sort of cycle time that we want to operate at. We won't do that. Um, another thing they described um, later on a way that they operated um, called the noise principle of least information. What it was is uh, if you have a problem, you solve it only to the degree that you need to, to sort of make a working product. You don't think about publishing papers or anything else. You don't really take it to the max. You just solve it to the limit that you need to to make something working and you move on from there. So this was, I think they had the idea that again, they needed to operate at a much different speed if they were going to realize the possibilities of this 1965 paper. 
And so it also then happens that there was, I guess what I would describe, a human incarnation of the principles of this 1965 paper. And this human incarnation was ironically not Gordon Moore. Gordon Moore was a soft-spoken professorial type. Uh, the human incarnation of Moore's, Moore's law was Andy Grove. He was the third person brought on at Intel. He was a chemical engineer, had a PhD uh, from Berkeley. And so one of his mantra, mantras was only the paranoid survive, that he was the one, the pusher. He was the head of operations, the head of manufacturing. He was the one who really drove and made sure that people would work. Uh, he was the one who sent out memos saying, it's Christmas Eve. I expect everyone to stay here and work a whole day. Um, <laughs> he was the one. Um, there's uh, Tom Wolf wrote a, uh, an article about, about Intel and he describes uh, Andy Grove that Andy Grove um, conducted um, courses for Intel employees on the Intel culture. And so he would ask people, well, what is the Intel culture? And one eager employee said, well, the Intel culture is. You don't wait for someone to hand you the ball. You take it and run with it yourself. And Andy Grove said, no, that's not the Intel culture. The Intel culture is you take the ball, you deflate it, you stick it in your shirt, you pick up another ball, and then you run to the goal line, and then you pull the ball out of your shirt, you reinflate it, and you score two touchdowns instead of one. And so it's this idea of a hyper-aggressive capitalism that we're going to you know, push, push, push. And in some sense, there are these possibilities there, but they're not going to be achieved by just normal business. They're not going to be achieved by, by normal capitalism, you might say, that you have to really you know, be willing to put your foot on the gas pedal you know, all, all the way. And so Grove was the one who really did that. And so... Um, one of the things then that Intel did was their first really successful product was uh, a semiconductor memory that up till this time, um, memories for magnetic, uh, for computers have been made up based on magnetic cores. And so Intel sort of saw at this time, there was a possibility of making uh, memories out of semiconductors based on, again, this phenomenon, which we now call Moore's Law. And so their first successful product was a one kilobyte, a one kilobit, uh, memory chip. And so, um, but this memory was an area that had the possibility for basically infinite expansion, that you could go from one kilobit to four kilobits to 16 kilobits and so on. But you could say one of the challenges of Moore's 1965 paper was that it wasn't really enough for the semiconductor industry to operate by this, that they had to get everyone to sort of accept this as sort of their metronome, or in some sense, um, if I can use a genetic analogy, it sort of insert the Moore's Law DNA into other, um, other uh, organizations. And so one example of how this happened was that there was a co computer company called Digital Equipment Corporation. It's uh, long gone now. And in 1970, they introduced a very popular computer called the PDP-11. Uh, but this computer had a fatal flaw. It was not a Moore's Law computer, you could say. It did not envision the con continual expansion of uh, computer memory. That It had a limit of uh, 64,000 uh, bytes of memory that it could address. And, and so by the mid-1970s, it was obsolete. You couldn't use it anymore. And so in 1977, this company introduced a new computer, and it was had a, a capability of addressing 
4 uh, billion uh, bytes of memory. So you could say they understood at this point, you know, that there is going to be this phenomenon driven by the semiconductor industry. They're going to expand into larger and larger capacities. And so we have to design our computers uh, to take that into account. Um, another one of their key uh, products was um, the microprocessor. And a couple of, of interesting aspects of this, that uh, sometimes the microprocessor is seen as one of the great inventions of the 20th century, but there are some semiconductor engineers, particularly people who were alive at the time, who don't see it as an invention at all. Uh, they say, everyone knew this was possible. You know, this wasn't something that, that took us by surprise, but you could say what Intel did was to believe that it could be a real product that they could uh, make money uh, in producing it. And so there weren't actually at the time people who were clamoring for this. You couldn't actually make a, a, a personal uh, computer from it. And so Intel had to spend a lot of time sort of beating around the bush, finding people who could use this. Um, a member of um, Intel's board of directors um, sort of asked sort of unhappily um, Intel's management, uh, when will you find a customer that we can be proud of? You know, so they had to sort of accept a lot of sort of no-name, small-scale uh, people. But one of the, you could say, in retrospect, one of the brilliant things about this, it was such a low-level product. It was so small. It had such little capacity. It was one of those products that was capable of, you could say, infinite expansion. You could go from four bits to eight bits to 16 bits and, and so on. And so, you know, here's, you know, that progression. And so that really, again, became one of the key aspects of, uh, of, of Intel's success. But again, it wasn't automatic by any stretch of the imagination. I just want to give uh, an example of this. Um, before the internet, in the early 1990s, there was sort of a period where you could say there was a desert in terms of new applications that would use uh, computing power. And um, so it was, Intel saw this as a threat, you know, that if the demand does not continue to increase, uh, we can't keep that curve going. We can't keep producing faster and faster, larger and larger microprocessors. So we have to find some way to stimulate demand. And so they had a program uh, based with uh, Microsoft trying to find new applications that would basically use computing power. So they had uh, programs to uh, use video uh, on and so on. Another thing they did was computer companies were being slow to introduce uh, Intel's newest models that they, again, felt like no one really needs this, this computing power, so we're not going to bother to introduce new computers. So what Intel did is they basically began making all the other components that were required to make computers so that anyone could basically buy these off the shelf and make their own advanced computer. And so they were basically saying to computer makers, we're not going to let you stop us. We're going to sort of make it possible for anyone to develop this and, and push um, push this phenomenon, push Moore's Law on, on forward. So I want to just say a word about what you could call the supply side of Moore's Law, how the technology develops that makes it possible for this continuation. That um, one phenomenon that is important to this whole um, this whole process is uh, a process called device scaling. That it's possible to um, shrink devices by a constant dimension, uh, making them smaller, uh, making them faster. And so that that process has gone uh, over uh, sixty years, uh, shrinking transistor sizes from 30, 30 uh, 300,000 nanometers to five nanometers today. But each generation requires uh, new equipment, new fabrication equipment. 
And so uh, to do this, uh, the industry established a, a sort of industry-wide process of roadmaps that they sort of uh, have people looking at what do we need to produce the next generation? What sort of equipment do we need? What, what sort of chemical purity do we need? Um, and so it leads to what uh, one scholar has called planned innovation to say, you know, we know that five years down the road, we need to have these things in place. And so in 2003, there was an international uh, roadmap developed for semiconductors, including companies from the United States, Japan, Korea, and so on, a thousand participants. And they developed roadmaps in 15 different areas. So uh, roadmaps in uh, lithography equipment, roadmaps, again, chemicals, testing, uh, clean rooms, and all these things. So the idea is that these roadmaps are really essential to keeping this, this process going. So in thinking about uh, Moore's Law now, it, it 58 years old. So on the one hand, it's been a story of diffusion. So this, this phenomenon that Gordon Moore described in, in 1965 has spread throughout many industries, and you could say throughout the, the general public as we you know, think about getting our new iPhone each year, or we think about a new version of uh, ChatGPT. Um, but it's also been about uh, concentration, that um, each generation of semiconductor uh, fabrication facility costs more and more, that now a semiconductor fabrication facility costs roughly $50 billion. Um, and there's only two firms in the world right now who are capable of making the most advanced uh, semiconductors, and one of them is in Intel. It's um, TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung. Another example of this concentration is there's one company in the world that produces the lithography equipment that is needed to produce the most advanced um, semiconductors. It's a, a Dutch company called ASML. So, um, so I just want to sort of leave us um, and sort of to um, give us some things for discussion with some observations or some questions trying to um, map this over to um, genetic engineering. So things I think of is just how capitalism and its various forms might shape uh, how gen uh, genetic engineering develops, um, the need for new organizations and new cultures in different technological regimes, um, the creation of demand, um, the role of suppliers, um, concentration, and then finally, you know, what a world um, governed by Kuzma's law uh, might look like. So I, I look forward to uh, um, hearing your thoughts and uh, thank you for indulging me in, in this talk. Yeah, how would you see Moore's law unfolding in AI, for example? Well, you know, so in some sense, why we have AI today is a result of the unfolding of, uh, of Moore's law, the development of more and more complex chips. And in some sense, it's governed even the techniques that people have used that there were, I think, um, the way that AI was conceived was sort of re was uh, reimagined based on people who sort of saw this increase in computational capacity. And so that that's uh, been a really important thing in how AI and things like chat GPT and so on have developed that you have, you know, right now uh, there's this company that makes the, the chips that drive um, AI, chat GPT, NVIDIA, and they've seen their market value expand that it's there in some sense one of the gating factors in the development of, of AI today. 
this is much a question for you as it is for maybe the group. Um, I was really struck by the whole presentation, but um, I really enjoyed the point about um, Intel starting just making these chips that you know consumers could buy them, and it you know reminded me of kind of the uh, era of the heyday of Radio Shack and RIP Radio Shack. Um, and you know, I think a lot of logically folks were like under 30 probably knew at least one guy in their base you know but somebody's dad in their basement like tinkering with computers and this sort of like consumer mm -hmm. electronics that you sort of described yeah um and i was just trying to think of, like what would the analog for that be in genetic engineering and also thinking about how this intersects with capitalism like yeah. the folks who are who went to radio shack in the 80s and 90s a lot of that was kind of a countercultural I'll throw it back to you all a little bit. So I, I was thinking about this, you know, so I, you know, Freeman Dyson wrote an article about how genetic engineering would sort of lead to sort of hobbyists developing their own plans right. and th yeah. things like that. I mean, so what do you think about that? I mean, is, is Freeman Dyson, is that sort of a realistic, you know, future? What one could imagine. So what I, I see in this industry is that capitalism leads to concentration of people, you know, small players being forced out. I mean, can you imagine that genetic engineering could lead to, again, obvious in their basement designing uh, plants or, or other things? Um, well, I'll just... well, also not into the role of regulation and how that is a distinction uh, in the world of computing. Uh, things we're allowed to progress mm -hmm. in their own way without big oversight. And that hasn't been true in genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. And so that presents some logistical challenges around the cost mm -hmm. of you know getting through the regulatory system mm -hmm. or even knowing how to navigate it. Um, but I wonder also if there have been any kind of ethical differences in the outcomes mm -hmm. or goals like there is just this assumed goal of profit mm -hmm. in the world of transistors and computing, and maybe that's a little different in genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. um, we also don't transistors, which may be a factor. Well, yeah. yeah, there's different psychology there. Yeah. Are any of you making things in your basements? I mean, you're all genetic engineers. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, you are one. <laughs> <laughs> you one with you. But the, I mean, the, so, you know, the first generation of genetic engineering was highly regulated. Um, the advent of CRISPR with gene editing has, has started to change the landscape. And what's it, just to Jill's point, you know, two things are happening. One is that DIY or do-it-yourself laboratories are popping up and they're, a lot of them are using CRISPR because CRISPR is, is, is easier to access in terms of using the technology in your garage or basement. And CRISPR is not likely to be as regulated as the first generation of genetic engineering. And so we might, I mean, we may be at a kind of precipice of seeing genetic engineering look more like this field because regulatory burdens are going down um, and a kind of hobbyist embrace is also happening. Huh. Yeah, like, I mean, you could, Pretty sure you can go right now to companies to work for IDT and buy a CRISPR kit, and like, like anybody could go buy one. Yeah, you might not know what to do with it or whatever, <laughs> but you can learn that stuff. And there's pretty vibrant, like, 
DIY CRISPR. I think I think one obstacle to the DIY bio is access to equipment because a lot of the advanced equipment to do the genetic engineering is incredibly expensive. So you can buy the re, I'm sorry, you can buy the reagents and things. It's more expensive if you're buying them on your own, but you can do it. Um, but some of the machines to do sequencing cost a million dollars. So, I mean, who's going to have a million dollar machine in their basement? It's, you're not. I suppose it would be a hybrid where you could provide the whatever it's needed and let it run on somebody else's machine who could then just do this for hundreds or thousands of users. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are charge them a fee, of course. There are definitely something like that. Services that you can pay for. Yeah. Yeah. It's still thousands of dollars. It's it's not. I mean, you had to be really rich. <laughs> but will those costs come down? I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I I get you know. I mean, I get emails, and I don't think they're from your old company, Nolan, or a different company. But I get emails about you know, hey, don't you want to buy this little kit where you can like work with your kids and have some create a species of plant that glows in the dark and. You know, it's uh, yeah. you know, DIY stuff. And, you know, yeah. but I wonder, I mean, I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, I think, you know, is this kind of like where we were like when you when you first got, you know, the early computers, the early personal computers, they couldn't do much of anything. Mm -hmm. People still wrote programs that did oh okay, that's something that's not all that exciting. Okay, the plant blows. But then it it escalated from there. And do we see that kind of escalation coming in the DIY? biospace do we see the cost of those things coming down or services offered to fill that gap or are people interested in i don't know is it a cultural difference i mean i don't know i mean it's yeah. over the last 10 years it just seems the interest in diy bio has gone down not up but maybe i'm just not privy to that subculture yeah i, I just i was coming back to First question. So, if you, you want to talk about DIY? Well, I would make a comment, but I have another question. But I'll make a comment. You mentioned, I guess, NVIDIA. You mentioned <laughs> uh, in the 90s, I, I was building a personal first computer in high school in my basement, mm -hmm. and I was looking for video graphics cards so I could play video games. Mm -hmm. And I was building this like video game machine. And that company was like transforming, kind of, you know, all about. Um, but that aspect of like play and actually video games you know, would have an important part of history of if you ask me. And I wonder what the analog would be maybe for bio. Like, what's the where's the play? Where's the what, kind of just like creativity? You had your so yeah. I was I was thinking of going back to this issue about the parallels or lack of mm -hmm. in terms of. When they were doing all of this stuff, and okay, who's going to be your big players? Who's going to pay for all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, and and these little things are not going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. In in this kind of sequencing stuff, what's paying for it is biomedical, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there, it seems like there's a diversity of things that are going on, mm -hmm. and you know, you you know, starting with the human genome project mm -hmm. and watching how that has moved things along, and the uh, blowback or whatever comes out of it enables people to do ecological studies mm -hmm. on their favorite diverse plants and all this stuff on microbiomes and mm -hmm. stuff like that that never would have been enough to actually move that field further with all the technology we talked about. Today. So I, I wonder if we can think about what, what that looks like compared to what is going on. So, I mean, 
what I think I hear you saying is that it spread so it really has spread really very widely and it's not maybe subject to as much concentration as well I think that there's this huge concentration I mean, think about yeah. how many companies there are that service all of this not yeah. many mm -hmm. and they compete with each other to have the longest reads and the most accurate reads mm -hmm. and all of that is funded by a biomedical department right mm -hmm. but the result of that is mm -hmm. that you can get a genome with full length chromosome mm -hmm. sequences for your favorite bug mm -hmm. you know what I mean like mm -hmm. so at, at a very cheap cost mm -hmm. compared to what it was five years ago mm -hmm. so all of that though is being you know like they found their place you know yeah. that same thing if they didn't have that place there would be nothing mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just to build up that point, I think we're talking a lot about like capitalism and how decisions spread widely, and that's promoted a lot of computer engineering. But right, somewhat in your understanding, that we don't want to minimize the amount of DOD money that like pushed the semiconductor into becoming a real thing, and like even today, it's such a huge geopolitical issue. One of the reasons Taiwan is you know, maybe our state of invasion is for that semiconductor technology. I just don't know if there's that same global interest in GE and there's the biomedical investment, but there's nothing like USDOD to really put something on the map. Um, so I, I, as, as important as capitalism is to this sort of forwarding, I, there's just certain, seems to be certain conditions that just aren't there. And I think that's just one of them about like, the global dependence and competition, you know, with some countries feel it's existential for energy. Right. So, just to come, of course, there was a grant at NC State from NORPA, right? And that had to do with the safe genes thing in terms of protecting us from gene dropping. But I guess that's a, that's a really important point in terms of like, where are we now? Where will we be in 10 years, right? I mean, you could. Science fiction often helps us to think about where that is, the creation of varieties of crops that are resistant to the pathogen that you've created for everybody else. So the idea of warfare and stuff like that. I, I have no idea, but uh, that would lead to more investment. But we're... Jason? I think it's also possible that that pharma plays the role that DOD was playing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the deep pockets, the sense of there is going to be a huge payoff for you know high risk, high reward research. Um, you know that may be happening. Um, the other thing I wonder, and perhaps from your perspective on this, I I loved hearing you talk about how you know at the time of Moore's paper, when people looked at that line, it was kind of like, oh dear, like we don't even know what sort of products could be there. We it's just is this even possible? Yeah. Like, even if we could do it, would we? Because it might not be profitable. Who's going to use this? I feel like we're living in a different world now where there's this assumption mm -hmm. that, like, if you go out and sequence the genomes of all of life on Earth, which, I mean, there are people not quite that ambitious, but I can't mm -hmm. remember how many genomes they're trying to sequence. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of confidence, like, well, once we get that information, we can't do it now, but pretty soon we'll be able to use that in a really easy way. Like the technology will be there. We, 
let's just move forward toward that. It, even the human genome sequencing project was in that vein. I mean, nobody had any idea how we were going to use that information, but we invested a heck of a lot of money and a lot of human time in producing a sequence because there's this kind of confidence that that it will be useful. And I don't. I wonder whether that's different now when you get published. And I guess there's an awful lot more money around, you know, today to support that. I mean, that you have that, you know, Fairchild was sort of at the point of origin of the venture capital, you know, industry, and so you have, you know, people in Silicon Valley willing to put a lot of money into, you know, genetic engineering and stuff, and knowing that maybe 75% will be losers, but, you know, if you can hit it big with one, you know, that, that will, you know, that will more than justify it, so. Um, just to tie back to the Moore's Law in terms of the number, of, you know, the, the cost going down is the number of um, transistors. We're not, I was looking, when we were preparing for the cluster gala, we were looking at the analogy with genetic engineering and, when they first sequenced the human genome in well, 2001, it cost $100 million. And now you can sequence it for $600. And so I'm just wondering, you know, where, again, with the parallels, if you can sequence a genome for 600, you know, they're not making a lot of money off that $600 genome. And so they're probably look, like in the same way, looking for ways to make that technology more highly utilized because, you know, at that price point, and it, it's assuming that it will continue to go down, um, that they need people to be, a lot of people to be using it in order to make any money off of it. Uh, is the information that constitutes the domain of genetic engineering, is that information converging into a large-scale integrated circuit, converging like the convergence of the sciences is expected to be? That they feel that's what it will have to do to evolve. Yeah, I, I that is beyond right? maybe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no comment. It's, it's, Not from you. No comment. No comment. I mean, these are all really exciting questions to, to thinking through in terms of what might happen. That's uh, where this connection with the uh, meaning that we have. Was in terms of where are going to be we going to be with the convergence of AI, biotechnology, data in the next twenty and things we don't even know of yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, coming to that point, I think talking about like investment and expansion and thinking about the future, like where could this product go? Something that I haven't, and this could be because. I'm not a natural scientist, but I haven't seen the same sort of low-level products with that infinite expansion that was described. You know, we had you were talking about the calculator that kind of loved out because it just there's no infinite expansion. And I wonder if there's an analog to that in genetic engineering that's you know sort of hard. So there may be these expected features like, oh, we can do these things in the future. But there isn't a clear like microprocessor or something that's able to push forward, especially in, in the light of conventional. My understanding is that conventional breeding still outpaces and still more useful than a lot of genetic engineering methods. So it's sort of like, is there that low level infinite expansion product? To me, no, it doesn't seem to be present in genetic engineering. So, at least there's potentials and areas for investment. It, that, that path just isn't 
there. Anyone else want to comment on it? <laughs> I guess that's it. it depends on if you're talking about like genetic engineering or biotechnology in general. It's like you can trace like PCR machines and sequencers, and they start out for these big things, and now they have like little mobile PCR machines. So huh. it's not really like genetic engineering per se, but the biotech industry machines have gotten smaller and more capable and more mobile, and like they've kind of followed that same path a little bit. Yeah, so building on that and going back to Patty's comment or question, the sequencing technology has expanded from doing a single base at a time and you get like 500 base pairs. So the cost is going down, but it's going down per base. But every time a new platform is introduced, it's forcing you to sequence many more bases. And so there's this interesting conundrum. Like it's great if you want to go sequence a thousand human genomes at one time, you can do that. But if you just want to sequence something kind of low level, it actually has this weird counterproductive thing where it can be more because it's forcing you to get more data than you even want or need. Um, and, and the companies with the plant, I liked how you called it plant innovation. I always think of it as planned obsolescence. <laughs> but they, they, they stop supporting these older machines that might have fit that niche that you're new because you're not in the medical. You're you're new, you know, you finally got to catch up to the technology. And now they're like, no, nope, sorry, we don't you have to use our new fancier that's more expensive, but you get more data. You're like, but you don't need more data. <laughs> so there's this like weird tug. And I wonder if the knowledge of knowing how the transistor path went plays into how they develop these technologies. I think we're in a pretty like unique time in history as like if I am thinking about your question on like how demand is created, because it seems like at least from a genetically engineered crops perspective, a lot of the past crops are created not with necessarily the consumer in mind, but more focused on yield and output. And now with genetic engineering and CRISPR making it a little bit easier, I was like, we're seeing companies like Pairwise punch out like it's less better mustard green or this pitless cherry. So in my mind, that's not equivalent to like the personal computer, but it might lead to an avenue of cheaper things as demand goes up where people are like, oh, genetic engineering can be utilized for this. Like I can go online and do 23andMe. I think once it's avenue to where I'm not buying a computer or I'm creating a computer to play video games, it's something that I can do. That might actually kind of shift the prices down. So I have a question about the kind of self-fulfilling. I do as a historian, like the self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of Moore's Law, because mm -hmm. they kind of set it out the yeah. way you describe it. They mm -hmm. set it out as subjective. Mm -hmm. It draws everybody's attention. The other striking thing you mentioned is that the R&D labs were like shut down with Intel and no R D. So that was like a very intensive kind of reductionist innovation objective and I want and then they're just piling on resources to, to meet their prophecy. So how I mean is there any instances in the history where they were shutting down R and D pathways, other types of computing architectures like uh, I mean quantum computers because they have advanced more quickly. Yeah I mean it, it, I mean I think you know this progress has certainly diverted you know, resources away from all our alternatives. I think that there were times when companies 
imagined um, alternatives, you know, um, for example, when I was working at IBM, you know, there was this idea of um, Joseph's and superconductor technologies and, you know, the, the scientific appeal of this was really great um, because it's, you know, it seemed to um, provide um, circuits with no resistance. You know, that was like right. the ultimate that you could ever achieve. But it, sort of all the money thrown into here just made alternatives um, really un untenable. But there was another technology called uh, gallium arsenide. And um, there was, uh, it became said, gallium arsenide is the technology of the future and always will be. Um, you know, so it, it, it just couldn't, you know, there's just so much money poured into this technology that um, people who tried alternatives felt burned and, uh, you know, just didn't, weren't willing to put money into it. Yeah, that's correct. Fred, did you have your hand up? Well, I was thinking about these, these same issues in terms of um, us moving forward and in, in genetic engineering and especially in sequencing, it seems like governments are coming in to give the push. So in England, they're going to sequence all the species in England, right? So that's not a any kind of capitalistic kind of driven thing. I, I think pharmaceutical companies may be doing this kind of thing about, you know, getting something out of uh, gene mining, you know, like do lots of species in the tropics or all that kind of thing. Clearly that whole thing about going to the oceans and getting all the microorganisms to find new drugs. So it's kind of a funny thing in terms of a lot of that funding is coming from governments as opposed to companies trying to, to do that. But I also think about it in terms of that funding is going to lead us to having all that genomic data as we destroy biodiversity on Earth. We're going to have all of that connected to IT, right? In terms of recreating biodiversity, you won't have it. You won't have these real species. You'll have them um, on yeah. the, uh, the on data chips. Yeah. You have the ghost in the machine. Traitor diversity. <laughs> I mean, also nationalism is only a degree or two away from capitalism, especially yeah. if we're talking about England. We have a history. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. It's a sudden number seven on the empire. So, I mean, you know, I don't know how many how they're thinking about it now, but history could remind us that those aren't that removed from each other. Yeah, so you think of Kew Gardens and things like that, the collection of plants from all, all mm -hmm. over yeah. Right. So what, what is the rationale that uh, Britain gives for this project? You know... I think it's pretty poor. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know if any makes it. I mean, if you were going to go to the tropics and, and do this for species that match, you know, like groupings, I mean, I, I don't think a scientist would have ever said to do that. That's why it seems like a national kind of thing. You know, I, I don't know if there's yeah. a great goal. I mean, you know, the, the, the Brits classify every butterfly in Britain as watched, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of a, this has to do more with something else. Okay, I'm gonna have to cut you off. I'm sorry. <laughs> we need to respect people's time. So it's uh, one o'clock. So help me thank Ross for a really interesting talk. Thank you. Have a really good discussion. And we will be back here next week with Amanda Pierce from EPA. Yeah.